Hey everybody, I'm your host, Gene Marks, and this is season two of the Paychecks Business Series podcast. As you probably know by now, I'm a certified public accountant, a regular business columnist for a bunch of publications you may already read, like The Guardian, of The Hill, The Philadelphia Inquirer, Forbes, and Entrepreneur. But most importantly, I'm a small business owner of a financial and technology management services company, and I've teamed up with Paychex, the leading provider of human resources, payroll, benefits, and insurance services to bring you real-life stories and advice from real-life business owners and experts. Last season, we talked about the challenges associated with COVID-19, and this season, we're focusing on moving forward, innovating, and navigating the road to recovery. I am very, very pleased and honored to have on as my special guest, Matthew Iglesias, who was a senior correspondent and co-founder at Vox.com. Matt has always been one of my heroes. I've always been a fan of his and Ezra Klein, one of your co-founders as well. I've always been a fan of, of both of your work. Matt, um, thank you very much for joining. Oh, thank you for having me. So Matt, you've written a new book. I know you've given a bunch of interviews on this already. So that's good news because whatever question I ask, I'm sure you are just like prepped for the answer. But this book is called One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. And the premise of the book, and, and just please correct me if I'm wrong from the excerpts that I've read, uh, and I have purchased it, is that um, if America was a lot bigger in the form of population, um, it is, uh, America would be a lot better in a lot of different ways, particularly economically. And you're trying to make the case that with a billion Americans, we would be able to compete with the likes of China and India in the future. But of course, and I know people have brought up this issue before, Matt, right? I mean, we have 330 million people in this country, so we're not about to triple our population anytime soon. So why make this kind of a premise now? Well, so look, uh, you know, China has surpassed us as the number one economy in terms of domestic purchasing power. By some other measures, they're still behind us, but they're catching up. And, you know, it's no big secret. Like, why is China a big deal on the world stage? It's a, it's a middle-income country. It's growing, but it's not even close to being the richest country in the world. Uh, but their population is super-duper large. Um, and so my theory here is not that we need to triple the population tomorrow, but is that we need to get on a course to more rapid population growth. Uh, our population tripled over the past 80 years, so there's no reason it couldn't triple over the next 80. And if we get on a trajectory to do that, we will stay number one forever, which I think is a good goal. I mean, I think it's such an obvious goal that it's not like I hear politicians saying, oh, here's my vision for how we reconcile ourselves to being number two. Everybody they talk like greatness, make America great again, win the future, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that population growth is the only realistic plan to do that. Yeah, it's funny when I was growing up, um, you know, it was always about the world's going to be overpopulated and we have to cut down, you know, on the number of people on this planet. And obviously population has grown a lot. But you know, as you point out in your book as well, I mean, you know, there, there was a lot of open space between New York and San Francisco in this country. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, look, if you triple the population, one billion Americans, whoa, it's a big number. Are you crazy? Like, are we all going to be living in shanty towns? Um, <laughs> but we would have the population density of France. We would have half the population density of Germany. I don't know anybody who has taken a trip to Germany and come back and been like, oh my God, there's way too many people there. You know, it's, it's a teeming hordes of humanity. Like, it's fine. It's Germany. They're very organized and polite. Uh, they got some nice small 
towns, you know, weird little houses here and there. Sure. France is lovely. Uh, the UK has something like six or seven times America's population density. Uh, London is great. Scotland has nice big wide open spaces. There's just a lot of space on the planet. They're really, and it's funny, you know, I live in Philadelphia and you know, listen, you drive 20 or 30 miles outside of Philly and there's a lot of green and a lot of open fields and same thing in New York and DC as well. So, I mean, that, the premise makes a lot of sense. Now, one of the ways, um, of course, that you talk about, you know, again, if you're, if you're taking the long view, a century view of increasing population, one of the big ways, of course, is immigration. Uh, a lot of people listening to this, you know, podcast are small business owners and a lot of people have different views on immigration in this country. What is your view of immigration, Matt, and how it impacts businesses in the economy? Immigration is really good. Um, I think there are things we could do to make immigration better in terms of how we select immigrants or where we encourage them to settle. It's like tweaks we can make around the margin. But you look at studies of immigration's impact, and it's just, it's very positive. You know, immigrants start a lot of businesses. People think of them if they're having wrong ideas. People think of immigrants as just a source of labor. But immigrants are a source of entrepreneurship. They're a source of ideas. They're a source of consumer demand. Um, and they're a source ultimately of creating more thriving kinds of areas. And there's no place in America that has achieved prosperity by becoming hostile to immigrants. And if you look at the country, right, like suppose they had said in, I don't know what, 1820, they'd said like, all right, we're going to shut it down. We don't need any more people coming here. Like, would America be a richer country today? Of course not. Like, it would be much, 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 much poorer because such outsized gains are made by the handful of people who found high-growth startups and, and, and things like that. And also, you know, so you were talking about how you know, you don't have to go that far out of Philadelphia or DC or even New York to get into real green space and countryside. And that's true. Of course, if you drive the other direction, right, if you go from Philadelphia straight toward New York, you do go through a lot of built up areas. But that built up stretch of the United States, you know, from the suburbs of Washington all the way up to Boston, that's the richest part of this country, right? And it's not a coincidence. Like, this is a dense area full of cities, full of vibrancy, full of big ideas, full of great places to start a business because there's a lot of customers here. What would you say though to the, you know, there's, there's so many business owners that oppose immigration because they feel that, um, you know, it, it takes away work from, you know, from labor. It also uh, adds costs to our infrastructure as well and potentially creates more uh, stresses on the system to pay for their health care, pay for social security. What is your response when somebody says that? Sure. I mean, look, there's a, a National Academy of uh, Engineering look at the fiscal impact of immigrants. They find that it's positive. Positive. Uh, we could make it more clearly positive. That's like one of the big changes I do advocate for to sort of make sure that the, the immigrant impact uh, there is, is a net positive. You know, in terms of infrastructure, right, you look at a place like the Detroit area or you look at a place that, that I'm familiar with, like in inland Maine, um, and these are places that have lost population. And because they're losing population, it's actually very challenging for them to keep their infrastructure up, right? The biggest problem with infrastructure that you get is when you're relying on stuff that's 
very, very old. What supports continued investment in new infrastructure is strong population growth. So like, yes, it's true. If we had a billion Americans and we never built another piece of infrastructure, uh, that, w- that would be bad. That, that would be really dumb. Uh, but that's not how you do it, right? It's population growth is what creates the base to expand our rail systems in our biggest cities, to improve our road connections in our many smaller communities that are out there, to keep renovating and investing in our airports, you know, to, to, to upgrade. That if you go to uh, very rural areas, you know, it's true they don't have traffic jams as, as much as we have in big cities, uh, but they also really struggle, with, for example, with broadband internet, which is a big challenge, you know, for business owners, for would-be entrepreneurs in those places. But when you don't have population and you don't have population growth, it's really hard to make the case, the fiscal case for those kind of investments. Makes sense. All right, let's pivot a little bit. I Again, I've got you and I've always wanted to ask for your insights on certain questions about things that impact you know, small businesses in this country, Matt. I mean, you've covered business and the economy for years. And um, I don't think you're, you're, you're not, you wouldn't consider yourself to be an economist per se, but, you know, I think you're well experienced and, and well versed in a lot of the issues. So let me take one big issue that I've, you know, the deficit. Um, Matt, we, you know, obviously, you know, this country has a $22 trillion national debt. We are generating trillions in, in annual deficits, or at least on the way to doing that every year. Um, should business owners be concerned about our country's national debt? What is your perspective on that? No, I mean, I think business owners should look at the interest rate on federal debt, and it is less than the rate of inflation. And if there is anything to be concerned about, it's that the Congress is not acting the way a savvy business person would who has access to that kind of debt, which is to say, we should be either making high value investments in the future, or if we can't think of any high value investments, we should be reducing the taxes that we charge people so that the private sector can make more investments. Uh, And I really think, you know, hangups about the debt are very misguided. We have a problem, if anything, of too much demand for the safe financial assets that the federal government creates. And we need to um, either have big public sector projects that we undertake that will generate enduring value or much, much, much less taxes while keeping our programs in place. And frankly, I think we could stand to have some of both. You know, Paul Krugman has always been an advocate of of, of the position that um, Paul Krugman, obviously, for those listening, writes for the New York Times. He's an economist, a very well-respected, Nobel Prize-winning economist. He, um, you know, he, he kind of likens our national debt towards uh, a mortgage. To him, it's all about debt service. And, and he looks at it saying, listen, um, you know, as long as we can, a country can service its debt, um, there really doesn't have to be any limit on, on you know, on what that debt is. Um, do you agree with that position? Do you think that that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, I think that's basically correct. I mean, so recently, you know, I went into more debt than I was in previously, uh, but I didn't, it, it wasn't on something wasteful. It wasn't like I put um, a lavish dinner on a credit card. What I <laughs> right. did was I put solar panels on my roof. And the reason I did it was that I could get very attractive financing terms. And if you can, for very cheap, 
get something that has value over time. Like I'm going to keep mm -hmm. using electricity in the future. I'm, I'm quite confident. Uh, you know, sometimes business decisions are hard, but we all know you're going to need electricity. There's going to sure. still be sun in the future. So if you can for really cheap uh, do solar installations, like that's a no brainer. And it's the same for the federal government. Now, look, where people, um, you know, business minded people in particular get suspicious of progressive people like Paul is if they think, well, okay, the money's all going to go to some kind of uh, welfare payment, right. right? Some kind of cash transfer. And, you know, I, I support a welfare state and a social safety net, but it's correct that that's not an investment in the future, the way that my, my solar panels are, but there's plenty of things we could spend money on that have that investment type structure. And of course, you know, the public and private sectors can partner on that. So like, I think a big one is, simply to do like loan guarantees for useful energy projects is a way that you can pass the federal government's debt service capability on to entities that maybe have the entrepreneurial spirit, you know, the, the know-how to deliver and execute on projects. Um, but, you know, projects that are thought to have some kind of national interest. Makes sense. Now, you mentioned just earlier about, you know, interest payments. I mean, interest rates are at a historic low. So, you know, why not get, you know, if you can afford and maintain the debt at these kinds of low interest rates, uh, it makes business sense. Um, but obviously, there is an exposure to interest rates going up. Um, but is there also an exposure back to, to a market for the debt? I mean, you know, a lot of people come to me and say, well, it's, you know, it's China that buys up all of our debts. And what happens if they just decide to stop buying? Is that, do you also consider that to be an exposure? Well, I mean, pe people said that for a while, uh, but China has largely stopped uh, those kind of debt purchases there. You know, they had one currency policy for a while and they switched to another one. It hasn't had a meaningful impact. Um, so I think here's something that I think. I think that the super low interest rates freak people out because <laughs> the logic of super low interest rates is that we should have a ton of debt. But the idea of having a ton of debt makes people queasy. It seems irresponsible. It, it disciplines Congress poorly. And so what people would like is to have a world where the interest rates are more like what they remember from the mm -hmm. 80s and 90s. Um, and population growth is actually one way to get that, right? If the population is growing more rapidly Rapidly, you have much more robust investment demand for hard capital, right? Just like there will be more houses, more strip malls, more concrete poured, more steel, more wood. Uh, and that will push equilibrium interest rates up. And I think it will get people back to the kind of economic policy environment that they're more comfortable with, where if the government wants to spend money on something, it has to come up with a plausible tax to collect. And where that kind of disciplines government decision-making or vice versa. You know, I, I think progressives wish that Donald Trump had to choose between cutting taxes for his, you know, wealthy supporters and keeping social security for his elderly supporters. But in this no growth environment, market interest rates stay very, very low and the government can just kind of do whatever. Um, and some people are really enthusiastic about that. But if it rubs you the wrong way, if your instinct is that's wrong, population growth is the answer. And, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm here to sell a book, but I do think that that's correct. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So an another question that we have, and whether this ties into population growth or not, I'm not sure. But I, again, I, I feel the need to ask. I mean, we we've had trillions of uh, stimulus money put forth because of COVID, you know, and, and justifiably so. Uh, and right now, as you and I are speaking, I mean, you know, Congress is potentially considering another stimulus bill as well. What impact do you think, Matt, that has on 
inflation. In an interesting experiment, because the COVID stimulus was was interesting. It was very um, actually well designed in terms of just rushing a ton of cash into people's pockets. Right? Um, it wasn't built around a lot of really complicated programs, things like that. So um, consumer spending, you know, went up quite a bit, and we just haven't really seen a lot of price inflation. Uh, we have seen the cost of groceries go up uh, a little bit offset by reduced restaurant demand. Um, we're seeing a lot of house purchasing activity. Hopefully we'll see house building. But I think that the lesson, or at least one lesson of the COVID stimulus experience is that America's business owners actually have more ability ability to expand production than we had maybe been giving them credit for, or than the Congressional Budget Office had been giving them credit for. I mean, I have not seen prices skyrocketing uh, in my life. Uh, I see people are selling things, people have money, it seems okay. How about healthcare? Are you a proponent of a, of, of a national health system or you, do you support the Affordable Care Act? Um, where, where do you stand on healthcare, particularly from the standpoint of a business owner? I think in the longer run, we would want to have a system where people are not getting health insurance through employers. I think it really advantages large established employers over smaller ones, over startups, over people who want to, you know, quit their job and be their own boss. I think creating this extra healthcare hurdle for them um, is really challenging. I think, you know, how you get from here to there is difficult. Um, I think the Affordable Care Act did a lot of stuff that was helpful, primarily in terms of helping uh, low-income people just get access to insurance. I don't think it did that much to transform the plumbing of how the system works for ordinary people. I mean, you know, every time... Uh, you know, so I, I work at Vox and it's great and I love Vox, um, but there's a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff happening in the media industry all the time. A lot of people trying to go independent or work on different platforms, you know, and every time I talk with someone who has an idea like that, like the arc of the conversation winds up bending toward health insurance. And you want to have a country that's not like that, right? You want people's business idea to be evaluated on the basis of, look, is there a market for this product? And can you generate it at a reasonable cost? Not, well, how are you going to get healthcare for people? That just shouldn't be, that shouldn't be the conversation. You know, people should get healthcare from the healthcare program, right? Now, now how that works, like exactly what you have to pay and what's taxed, it's like, there's a lot of different ways it could work out. There's a lot of ways different countries handle it, but just like, it shouldn't be a question lying behind everybody's business decisions. Does it amaze you that we've had thousands of years of, you know, recorded human history, empires have come and gone, and we are still arguing and haven't figured out this stuff? Uh, it's not great. <laughs> not great. I mean, healthcare is a it's a tough one. Healthcare is tough. Even we're talking about the deficit, government spending, inflation. Uh, you know, everybody's got their points of view as to what it would be. And you would just think, I mean, listen, I mean, we just right, people still argue over whether to wear a mask. Uh, you know, right now, so it's yeah, it's uh, it, it's hard to believe that uh, we 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 haven't learned as much as we had we could have learned 
from economies of old. Matt, getting back to your book, One Billion Americans, The Case for Thinking Bigger. Uh, we're looking to, you know, your, your idea is more people means more growth. Where do you see growth opportunities for businesses in the years to come? Um, <laughs> that's a great question. You know, if I knew, I would, I would just go I just seize all those opportunities. <laughs> you wouldn't be in Vox anymore. <laughs> I'd go make them. Uh, journalism. Uh, I don't know about that. No, look, um, you know, the future, I think, uh, you know, there's, there's one set of businesses in the kind of high-tech space, you know, endless scale, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but most of the economy, most of what we do is providing services to each other, is doing things face-to-face, is finding ways to extend the division of labor, essentially, and take off the plates of people or other business owners, things that are extraneous to what it is that they want to be doing, you know? So, I mean, I think that like just finding ways to solve problems, to take hassles out of people's lives. As we become a wealthier and wealthier society, people want to like do their job and then they want to have their fun and not be, you know, doing the drudgery of day-to-day life. Matt Iglesias is a senior correspondent and co-founder at Vox.com. Please read him there. Thank you, Matt. That was great. And uh, very happy to finally get your insights on some of these issues. And I think many people will appreciate them. For more great podcast episodes from the Paychecks Business Series podcast and other information to help you run your business, please visit paychecks.com forward slash works. That's W-O-R-X. I'm Gene Marks. Thanks again, Matt. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all again soon. Take care. This podcast is property of Paychex Inc. 2020, all rights reserved.